10 years since the last space shuttle mission. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. On July 8th, 2011, Atlantis launched from Kennedy Space Center, the final mission of the shuttle program. Since its first flight in 1981, the space shuttle continued human exploration of space after the Apollo program, sending humans and satellites into space, conducting medical research in orbit, building the International Space Station, and ferrying astronauts to spend months-long missions on the orbiting lab. We'll revisit the space shuttle program with two-time astronaut Bruce Melnick, who was a mission specialist on both space shuttle Discovery and Endeavour. Then, last year, NASA returned to human spaceflight after the end of the shuttle program. The agency's commercial crew program partners with SpaceX and Boeing to launch astronauts once again from U.S. soil, and so far three SpaceX missions have sent astronauts to the International Space Station. We'll speak with Space Florida's Dale Ketchum about the Space Coast plan post-shuttle and how commercial companies are filling in the void left by the program. A look back at the shuttle and a view of the path forward. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Astronaut Bruce Melnick flew to space twice, first on Discovery back in 1990, then on Endeavour's maiden flight in 1992. I spoke with Bruce back in 2017 at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. Back then, he was speaking to guests about his time at NASA and on shuttle. We spoke about the thrill of riding a shuttle into orbit and the challenges and smells of life in space on the orbiter. This is a highlight of that conversation. So, Bruce, I want to go back to October 1990, launch a discovery. Walk me through those moments as you're walking down the crew access arm. You're getting into into your into your seat, and you're waiting for that countdown to hit zero. What's going through your mind at that point? Brent, it's funny. I, I talk about that when I do the astronaut encounter here because a lot of people have asked that. Because I was a mission specialist one and two sitting behind the commander and pilot. I was mission specialist one on Discovery on both my flights. I had to wait for the commander and pilot to get in their seats because they used my seat as a way to climb into their seats. And so I got to stand out there on the orbiter access arm and looking at the vehicle until they all got strapped in and it was just awesome. And then when it was my turn to get strapped in, I was laying on my back and then the closeout crew had us all strapped in. They closed the hatch. I can tell you that on both of my flights, laying there on my back, I fell asleep. It was the most relaxed I had been in, you know, three years. I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. No one asked me any questions. No one giving me emergency procedures. Didn't have any doctors, you know, poking me or probing me. It, it was just a time to lay back and get ready to go fly. What's that moment you realize, hey, I'm in space now? It's when uh, you get to Miko. You get to Miko, and all of a sudden, you know, right before Miko, you're pushed back in your seat at 3Gs, 3Gs throttling, and, you know, it's actually a little difficult to breathe, a little difficult to talk. You know, it's not painful or anything. It's just, you know, uncomfortable because you're pushing against your chest. But then you come to Miko, and it's boom, instantaneous, zero G. And it's quiet, and it's smooth, and you don't feel like you're moving. And But you're now you're traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. And then my very first job as a rookie on my first flight was to take a picture of the external tank. So you get off, so you get to Miko, you do ET sept, you know, external tank separation, and then the commander starts pitching, 
in this case discovery over on her back so I could take a picture of the external tank through the overhead window. And as he's pitching discovery over on its back, the first thing I see is the limb of the earth. And I got so distracted just seeing the planet for the first time from space, I pretty much forgot to take a picture of the tank until Dick said, why don't you take it pictures? And did you expect that reaction? Like, I'm sure you had run that through your mind thousands of no. times before going up there, right? No, that that's something that, no, I, I didn't. I didn't know what to expect. I, you know, I was so focused on doing the job and getting the job done right. You know, I, I, you know, as soon as we got to Miko, I got out of my straps. I floated down, got the camera, went up to the overhead window, and all that stuff was just like training. But then, boom, there's the planet. It's like, I didn't think about this, you know. It's cool. Now, this might be a strange question, but what does it smell like up there? What does space smell like? Well, you know, you're not smelling space. You're smelling the environment you're in. But what's interesting about that to me is, you know, we make our own air. We we blend nitrogen and oxygen, make our own air. We have scrubbers that scrub the air, carbon dioxide and lithium hydroxide canisters. But I, I talk about this with when I talk to people about over at the dine with an astronaut over here is how foods and things taste different to me up there, and I think quite a bit everybody else. And it's because... If you leave your home for a while and then you come back, your house has a an odor or a scent. It's not a bad smell. It's just that when you walk open your door after being gone for a week, you say, yeah, I'm home. I smell my house. But how long does that last? Five minutes? You know, five minutes later, you don't smell it. Well, in this shuttle, you know, we were generating our own air, recycling our own air or scrubbing it. And before long, those smells probably build up in there, but you don't notice them. So you don't smell space. You just, you know, it's just like breathing air anywhere else. But it made food taste different. Some foods that I enjoyed on the surface of the earth were were horrible in space. Some things that I probably wouldn't even try to eat on the surface of the earth were great in space. But I think that's all about the atmosphere and the taste buds. And, you know, both my landings, we landed at Edwards Air Force Base. So we're at 4,000-foot sea level. So when we took off, we're at sea level. Or in space, we're at sea level because we keep the cabin pressurized. So when we landed Edwards and those guys popped the hatch at 4,000 feet, all of that smell from inside the shuttle, yeah, you generate an odor inside the <laughs> shuttle. But it's, it's, space doesn't smell. But inside the shuttle, you generate your own atmosphere. Now, you flew on both Discovery and Endeavor, and it was Endeavor's first flight. Did she have a new shuttle smell? Like yeah, kind of. Yeah, really. It it it, it was. It was kind of neat getting an Endeavor. It it was kind of like a new car smell. Everything you know, maybe a little fresh painty. Yeah, it was. It was pretty cool. Did you leave your mark anywhere in there? Did you sign anything or leave something behind? Uh, not not while we were flying, but I actually was out at Palmdale when Endeavor was being built. That was one of my collateral assignments, and I I think I left a little something inside a wing. Well, this question always comes out when I see you folks come talk to the general public, and and usually it's from a little kid. And they ask, well, how do you go to the bathroom in space? What do you think about getting that question from, from the, the young folks? It's not always the young folks. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I actually, when I give my presentations here at the Space Center, Visitor Center, um, I have several slides ready to go just prepared to answer that question. And it starts with a picture of the toilet, and then I talk about the difference between if you have to go number one or if you have to go number two. And um, anyway, it's 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 a little bit humorous, but it's you know it's a it's a bathroom, and you've got to use vacuum instead of gravity to make it all work. 
it's uh it's it's you know it's it's just a, a fact of life a human process but i make it i think most people think it's kind of comical the way i describe it <laughs> ballpark how much training did it take for you to use that that uh that space toilet well that's a, probably a, a lot of people don't realize but we actually have a toilet simulator over in houston and you can imagine when you know when things float around free there's certain things you don't want to share and one of them is anything that comes out of the body so they actually have a toilet over in Houston that's got a video camera down underneath the hole in the seat and so they and you have a so you get to watch yourself positioning yourself in a video display while you're sitting over the seat to make sure the holes line up and of course you don't have that video camera when you're up in space <laughs> But we do have something that we use, and behind you on the bulkhead, you know, there's Velcro all over the place. Well, on the back bulkhead, we put a mirror back there so that you can see what you're doing. You know what we call the mirror? The rearview mirror. <laughs> so that's a trivia question. If anyone ever asks where the rearview mirror is on a space shuttle, it's in the bathroom. Now, you were a mission specialist on, on both of your assignments. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the most challenging part about working in space and doing the particular things that, that you had to do on, on your mission? The training was awesome. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll even come right out and say it. The training sometimes, for example, in operating the remote manipulator system or a Canadian arm, as people call it, sometimes it was just over overbearing. You know, I, I made the comparison how it only took me 212 hours to be able to fly two different airplanes and helicopters and be an unrestricted naval aviator and fly everything in the inventory. And when I was get, getting training on the arm, you know, it was like, twice that for operating a crane and I said you know that's a little overkill but a lot of that was to train the trainers I understand that you know as times passed Um, but the only difficulty or thing that got a little tough was when I was on my second flight Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not but it was the Intelsat reboost mission or the Intelsat rescue mission a a lot of spacewalks and I was the arm operator and when you're operating the arm you know, you, you can't just free float. You have to have your feet in foot restraints, and then you've got a rotational hand controller and a translational hand controller, and that's how you control the arm while you're looking out the window or looking at some of your video screens for the cameras. Well, we had such a struggle with grabbing that satellite. We, you know, it kept bouncing off the capture bar. I mean, we, we ended up extending the mission two days because of the, the failures that we had of the capture bar. But the whole time that Pierre was trying to grab the satellite, I'm sitting there trying to operate the arm with very, very, you know, very a lot of finesse because it's, you know, he's out there messing with a 9,000-pound satellite and, and you don't want to damage anything. At the end of the, at the end of the two days of trying to catch that satellite with no success my legs and shins had cramped up so bad that I you know I really had to massage them bad because I had to react I, you have nothing to react against except your foot restraints but that was the only tough thing that there was ever there everything else was the training's great and everything worked good knock on wood how important is it to get out there and talk to the general public and talk about the work that that you've done and talk about the work that's being done with with the space program well, here on the Space Coast, and just, just a slight change to that, I now live on the west coast okay. of Florida, so okay. I'm not real close. But I do get over here, you know, four or five times a year. But over here, you're really preaching to the choir. So here, it's not as important as it is, say, even over on the west coast of Florida. Or I mean, they, they don't even get coverage of launches on TV over there. So 
you know, that's, that's important. You know, I take advantage of any time, but, you know, quite frankly, here you're preaching to the choir. The only thing that's changed here is with the loss of flying the space shuttle here, no astronauts come through here. You know, it used to be we always came down here, your crew of five, crew of seven would come in, would come in for TCDT, Terminal Countdown Demonstration Test. Still remember the acronyms. Uh, <laughs> I'm still learning them. <laughs> okay. But, you know, they're, you know, for a week you'd have a crew of six or seven running around Cocoa Beach talking to people and everything. And, of course, when you came down for launch, you're in quarantine. But, but there was crew members that worked here. I was a, what they called a Cape Crusader, which is really an ASP, a astronaut support person, where I, I would commute to the Cape every week from Houston, fly my T-38 jet. Then I was out in town, you know, the, the whole time I was here working. So, again, that's preaching to the choir. What they've lost now is we don't have any astronauts coming through here to do that. So we come here and at the visitor center, and that's about the only way we get the word out. Well, that, that should be changing soon with, with commercial crew being – a retired astronaut yourself and, and going through it, what kind of advice do you have for the next class of, of astronauts that will be coming through uh, Kennedy Space Center here? Oh, I don't, you know what? It, it, it's been so long, and things have changed so much, and they're flying a different spaceship. I mean, we were flying something that was very comparable to an airplane or a helicopter, you know, a lot faster, but, you know, you controlled it, you opened payload bay doors, you operated things. Now everyone's going to be flying a capsule. So... I don't know what kind of advice to give those guys. It'd be better for the Apollo guys to give them advice because I'm not clear on that concept. I'll, I'll just, I wish we were still flying the shuttle. You know, they were built to have a 100-flight service life, um, and I know it came down to you can't fly the shuttle, you can't you know, afford. You can't afford to fly the shuttle, you can't afford to build a new rocket, and you can't afford to maintain and operate space station, you know, with the dollars that we have. But, boy, I just, uh, the shuttle was a magnificent flying machine, and I I would really like to see something come back that takes its place and, and can do the same mission. Now, have you gone to visit Discovery and Endeavor where they are now? I've visited uh, Discovery. I've not visited Endeavor out in California. Um, I was up at Uvar Hazy before they took Enterprise out of there, so I saw that there. But So the final resting place is I just haven't been out to see Endeavor yet. But I'm probably going to do that this summer. I have a trip going out there, and I think my wife and I will swing by. But you can't beat the way they've done Atlantis here. I, I think anyone that's been to all the different places has said that what they've done here at the KSC Visitor Center I mean, it just blows everybody else away. Well, Bruce Melnick, thank you so much for speaking with me. This was incredible. Well, well, thank you, Brendan. We should mention Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex is a financial sponsor of this podcast. We had the chance to speak with more shuttle astronauts on this program. I'll post links to those episodes on our website. Just visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Still to come, commercial companies fill the void left by shuttle. The path forward as the Space Coast hosts commercial space companies. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. 
It's been 10 years since the last space shuttle launched from Florida's space coast. Since then, NASA and the state of Florida have worked to court private businesses to fill the void left by the end of the program. One of the people leading that effort is Dale Ketchum. He's a vice president at Space Florida, the state agency responsible for courting private aerospace business. He joins us now to talk about the plan for post-shuttle Florida and what work is still ahead. Dale, thanks for speaking with us. Glad to be here. So it's been 10 years since uh, the last space shuttle launched from Kennedy Space Center. Um, In in a few words, how can you describe the past decade uh, since the end of that program here in Florida? Well, I guess the best way to look at it is that the actual work of transitioning post-shuttle began really in 2005 when uh, President Bush announced they were going to cancel the shuttle, and we had six years before then. Uh, and the state and the county started working with a federal delegation to prepare for that inevitable impact, which we knew was going to hurt. Um, and then when the shuttle, when they finished construction of the International Space Station uh, under the Obama administration, he had added one additional flight to the manifest, but there were no other payloads in the, to fly in the shuttle. So the program did end at that point. Unfortunately, all that preparation really didn't amount to anything because it it came in the middle of the Great Recession. And then shortly uh, around about that time, uh, President Obama canceled Project Constellation, which was the follow on because it demonstrated itself to be an utterly unsustainable program. So the Cape went into a very hard time, which we anticipated. Um, I think since then, uh, our recovery's really been in three phases in my mind. The first was transitioning old shuttle facilities and equipment to other programs. Uh, the classic examples being uh, Launch Complex 39A turned over to SpaceX for launch, uh, OPF3 turned over to Boeing, uh, actually turned over to Space Florida, and then Boeing for Starliner production. But then there were other components like OPFs 1 and 2 were turned over to the Air Force for the uh, secret X-37B space plane. Um, And NASA and Bob Cabana deserve a great deal of credit for making all that happen. Uh, uh, Much Space Florida was very involved in almost all of that. And you had one public entity and bureaucracy dealing with another public entity and bureaucracy. And that those transformations were certainly not easy. Uh, But we did it. And then we, that was sort of that first phase. The second phase really, I think, was highlighted by uh, Exploration Park and OneWeb uh, satellites and Blue Origin establishing their presences there, um, th- which was the intent of Exploration Park all along when NASA turned it over to the state to uh, manage and recruit. And I think that really moved the the needle significantly for Florida because these were uh, initially and still mostly are primarily commercial enterprises that really aren't focused on the government. I mean, Blue Origin has some uh, NASA projects it's pursuing, but that's that's not why they came here. And that's certainly not not why OneWeb is here. Um, So that that was really Space Florida's goal was to try to capture more of that commercial enterprise. Um, and, you know, but now we're at a point where Exploration Park is really sort of all but filled up. And, uh, so that really sort of brings us to that third phase, which is what's happening now out at the, uh, 
Space Launch and Landing Facility, which used to be called the Shuttle Landing Facility, but we don't have any shuttles anymore, so we changed the name. And that's really uh, Florida Department of Transportation funding coming through Space Florida to put in the roads and the power and the retention ponds so that we have new space available like we did Exploration Park so that when the next Blue Origin or OneWeb satellite comes knocking on our door, we'll have land ready for them to start building, whether it's a, a hangar or a factory or a processing center. Um, so that that's really that, that's a part of our transition goal um, here at the Cape. Mm-hmm. When when you drive out there, you see that there is so much commercial activity there. From what you described, if you're at the press site at Kennedy Space Center, you can look one way and see SpaceX's uh, facility, um, their launch pad, and their hangar. Uh, you look the other way, you see the X-37B, you can see where the Starliner is. You are running out of room. <laughs> and So, you know, what kind of utilization will be used at the um, the launch and landing facility? What what can companies do there? Well, it we're, the, the plan is we're going to put a road right down the middle running parallel between State Road 3 and the runway. And that will open up both air side and land side. Not, it, it's, it's essentially like an airport. And that space will become available for uh, the right kind of economic development activity uh, that will support... Uh, the growth of the Cape, support the evolution of the industry. Um, It's the reason why NASA turned it over to Space Florida is we're better at commercializing. Uh, Our our toolkit is better geared towards that. So we've been patient in executing because you don't want to get too far out in front of the market. Um, But we're pretty confident that before the year's out, um, you'll see why we're doing this. A lot of companies are expanding and are popping up. Um, you know, Blue Origin and SpaceX both have facilities out in Texas. Um, California has become a, a hot spot for aerospace development and commercial companies. What's the draw to Florida? Why should companies come here? Oh, well, that's a good question because uh, it's becoming increasingly competitive, um, uh, at which is what you want, ideally. Competition drives innovation and costs down, and it's good for uh, – uh, good for the, uh, the American space program and good for the consumer and good for the taxpayer as well. Uh, I think the value of Florida is, and I think what's driving much of industry here is you have not only a, a launch site, uh, the premier launch site on the planet, but the it's that growth of the commercial sector here as well as having uh, NASA and the Space Force uh, we're really building a synergy here um, that's attracting a lot of not not only just the big companies, but one of the things Space Florida is keenly focused on is the supply chain of second and third tier uh, vendors who come to support these uh, large programs to the point where our biggest single challenge is helping to aggressively um, grow and mature and scale up the talent pipeline. Because if there is one big demand for all of these organizations, it's talent, Uh, which is a national problem, but it's that much more acute here at the Space Coast because of the success that we've had. Uh, When you think back 10 years ago, I mean, 
as you described, the Space Coast was hit with some pretty tough challenges. The end of the shuttle program, cancellation of Constellation, a recession. Um, I mean, did you expect this to happen as quickly as it has over the past 10 years? Or, I mean, looking back, what are your thoughts on, on how this has evolved? I, I, to be honest with you, I can remember uh, our sort of public position, and at least what I was saying commonly at the time, was the expectation was that we would recover from the shuttle program playing um, small ball, which was a term at the time I was a coach in Little League. And we weren't going to be able to, you know, don't look for hitting home runs. Just get some base hits and move move the players around the bases and bring in some runs. And to some extent, we were successful at that. But then, obviously, uh, uh, the growth, you, you can't say anything other than the growth of SpaceX is its own home run. Uh, Blue Origin certainly was one. Um, so we've, it, it has developed, I think, uh, at, at least, I, I think we'd certainly say we're satisfied with the development so far. Um, we haven't done it perfectly. Uh, we've had our issues. Um, but I think for the most part, the rest of the world would like to be where we are now. And that was not the case 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And Dale, finally, uh, when I inevitably invite you onto this program 10 years from now, um, what do you think you're going to say about, um, you know, the 2020s and, and space in Florida? Well, I, I, I guess what's really been driving us all along is that our, our focus has been on the future of innovation in space. Uh, beyond just the fire and smoke of launch, although that is always very cool and absolutely essential. But it's kind of like just as in the early days of the Internet, people knew it meant new possibilities, but no one really knew exactly what it would become. And the Internet has dramatically transformed life for almost everybody on the planet. And I think so, too, we believe that access to space becoming more available um, to everybody will equally change life on earth and in, in a ways we cannot begin to imagine with the price coming down for industry, for academia, and now the wealthy and soon the middle class, uh, we face a future where human imagination and innovation and entrepreneurship can once again pursue ideas in uncharted waters. And that's exciting. Uh, there's risk involved. But our job at Space Florida is to position Florida at the epicenter of that new human adventure. And I hope in 20 years uh, we're well on our way. We've been speaking with Dale Ketchum. He's the vice president at Space Florida. Dale, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to do it. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. You can also stay connected to this show on social media. Give our Facebook page a like. Search for Are We There Yet Podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at AWTYSpace. Are We There Yet? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Randy Vuxta. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.